You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Before we start this morning, I think it would be good if we all just took a moment and took a really deep breath, right? In and out. That may be a weird thing to do when we start on a sermon, but let me promise you in a room this size, my guess is that is the first time some of you this morning have paused to take a deep breath. And I get it, right? Trying to get kids or maybe yourself here on time or close to on time, right? And all the stuff that's going on from the moment you get up in the morning until right now, there's probably been at least some of you in here that you have got to just sit and just pause for a moment. But what I'm also sure of in a room this size is it's not just this morning. For some of you, you would say, hey, right now in life, I could really use just a pause that maybe life itself right now feels that I just need to take a really big, deep breath. And I'm with you. I understand that. Even some of you, for times like this season of the year, we've all had those moments, and and maybe you're walking through that right now, moments or even periods of your life, where everything seems as though all the stuff you've got floating in the air could all come down at any moment. And that brings a lot of stress. And it brings a lot of, of struggle. I mean, we don't have to be told in this world and in our own lives that we lack sometimes this sense of peace. Yet if we're honest, we would say it's something that all of us really deeply desire. So for the next little while, it is my hope that we can all just take a little bit of a deep breath. And see what God has to say to us from his word this morning. And so this morning we are going to be looking primarily at the end of Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. So you can turn there if you want to use one of the Bibles that is in front of you in the pew. It's on page 1,000. Pretty easy. Page 1,000. Romans 4, 25 through five, two. In fact, it'll be on the screen. Let me read that for us. It says that he, Jesus, that is, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. It's a beautiful passage this morning. So as we're thinking through this, what I want us to see from our text this morning, quite simply, is that Jesus' death and resurrection provided the means by which we can have peace with God. His death and resurrection provided the means by which we can have peace with God So that's what our text is teaching us. What I want us to leave here convinced of this morning 
is that faith alone in Jesus brings, spirit, uh, brings peace spiritually, psychologically, and relationally. Now, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you know that we have taken a break from our study in Genesis and we are in this season of Advent. Again, the, the, the word Advent simply means appearing or his coming. And when we're referring to Jesus' coming that we celebrate here at Christmas, the first Advent. And yet we know that there's another Advent in which he returns. So we're looking at these themes of Advent. Last week, Pastor Cody brought us a, a message on the theme of hope. And we talked about not just a hope as in I hope that my favorite team or my favorite whatever does this, but a sure hope in Christ. That as we've been studying in Genesis, and we've seen all the promises of God that have been made and how he continues to faithfully carry them out, all of them leading up to him sending his own son to be the Messiah for the world. And we talked about last week that that hope, that that reality, that all that God promised that he would do in Christ, he did, gives us a sure hope that he says he'll come again and we can believe that so that our future is set. So we can have hope this Christmas because the Messiah that was promised is the one that has come. But here's the thing. We don't have to fill up our hearts and our minds with the hopes of this world, right? The, the hopes of this world are fleeting. They disappoint. Invariably, they, they fail to satisfy us. And yet so often, even especially maybe in this season, it's so easy for us to fill up our hearts and our minds with the hopes of this world. But the reality is we can have hope this Christmas season. A hope that is sure. A hope that lasts all of life's ups and downs. Because this Jesus that came brought us peace. And he brought peace between us and God. That's why we have hope this season. Well, quickly, what does the word peace mean? If we're honest, the word peace is, is thrown around all the time. We use it in, our, in our, just our common language. We, we can use it all over the place. And, and, and also at the same time, I think it's good for us to see what the Bible says about the word peace. So sometimes when we think about the word peace, we think of this lack of, of war and conflict. I think there's an element of that for sure. There's this external component or maybe sometimes we think of peace as this tranquility in my life. Or in, if there's order inside my life, that's peace. And I think there's an element as well to that. So if we're putting these together, I think we see the element of the external and the internal together uh, making this idea of peace. And so how does the Bible talk about the word peace? In the Old Testament, the word you might be familiar with is, is shalom. It, it, the idea we think about, uh, there would be a greeting that, that someone would say to someone else as well, even if you went to Israel today, to say something to the effect of peace be upon you, or may it be well with you. And to, me, to, be, to be well would be to be whole or to be complete. One Jewish author said it this way, that, that shalom means an overall sense of fullness, or completeness in mind, in body, in a state. So you get this idea that it's where everything in our lives is at still, is at peace. But God also in the Old Testament, specifically in, in Numbers and Ezekiel, he references a covenant of peace. So even from that, we're starting to go, okay, so there's a relational aspect to this. There's a relational guarantee from God of peace with his people. In Psalms and in the book of Zechariah, we also see that peace is attached to justice and truth. 
So there's an element in which there has to be that which is right, that which is good, for there to be peace, genuine peace. And Isaiah, putting all of this together in Isaiah 32, verse 17, quite simply writes, the result of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quiet confidence forever. And that sounds awesome. But who's righteous? It's not me. It's not you. The Bible teaches that. If you've been with us, our say in Genesis, we see over and over again, we are not righteous. But we see a God who is righteous. And so when we think about this season, we think about Christ coming in, and what it is that, what do we gain in Christ? Well, we gain his righteousness. So if we've gained the righteousness of the Lord, then how do we have peace? It's because we're made right with God in Christ. So we wrap it all up. Peace, you could say, is an internal and external tranquility and confidence based on the objective truth of a right relationship with God. Now, that's just my definition of trying to put it all together. It's more than a feeling. It's an objective truth. And yet there is an internal component to it. So as we're looking at these elements, uh, these themes of Advent, looking specifically at peace today, if I ask every single one of you to raise your hand, I'm not going to, who would desire to have peace in their life today and every day afterwards? My guess is every single one of you would raise your hand. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to have peace in their lives? And it may be stereotypical, but every beauty pageant contestant knows that answer, right? What's the one thing in your life, in your lifetime, that you would like to see accomplished? World peace, right? <laughs> if you've seen the movie Miss Congeniality, she's an undercover cop, and she says, harsher punishment for criminals. Crowd set there, totally quiet, not like you guys. And then she's like, uh, and world peace, right? And so like, we get it, right? I know it's a simplistic answer and maybe too stereotypical, but I think if we're really honest deep down, we really would all like to experience a world full of peace. We really have no idea what that actually looks like or feels like, and I think we actually would love to experience that. And yet that's not what dominates our lives mostly today, is it? To be honest, church, this is what I want for you this Christmas season. I want you to experience and to enjoy peace this Christmas season. Look, I get it. There are some global aspects of peace that that lie in the future for us. Habakkuk 2, he's writing, he says, it's a time in which the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the seas. We're not there yet. Two weeks ago, Pastor Cody led us looking at Isaiah 9 and this coming Messiah. And and we even sang it just a minute ago, but one of the titles of this coming Messiah is he's the Prince of Peace. And it says that of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's a future peace that we don't yet fully experience. But when we celebrate Advent, what we also celebrate is when Jesus did come, he did come to inaugurate that peace among God's people. And so this morning, I want us to see the three relationships that I believe he would desire for us to pursue peace and enjoy peace this season. Pursue and enjoy peace with God, peace with yourself, and peace with others. 
Let's look first at the peace with God. Like the theme of hope last week, it matters who and what you place your hope in. It matters to determine if, if, if that hope is sure and it's worth even hoping in. We've all placed our hope in things that just didn't last. In people or in things that, 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 that failed us. So it matters who or what, in this case who, we place our hope in. In the same way this week, it matters. It matters who you are most concerned to being at peace with. That determines if the peace that you seek is lasting. And if the peace that you seek permeates all the other relationships of your life. So we're going to look at those three verses, specifically starting in, in the middle, really, in chapter 5, verse 1. Where Paul writes that, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as good Bible students, and I know it's a little corny, but it's easy to remember, though, therefore is therefore something. And so Paul's writing and really trying to say, hey, everything I've talked about in the first four chapters, I want you to be thinking of when I say my next statement. And in, in, Romans, 4, uh, in Romans 1 through 4, Paul's making the theological argument that we are justified by faith. And then he also connects with that the necessity of our faith with our salvation. So Paul says that we are justified. Now, what does that word mean? Simply put, it means you are declared not guilty. In your sin, you are guilty. Being justified means you're being declared not guilty by a holy God. Verse 25, really a summary for the entire chapter, chapter 4, says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Jesus is the one who was delivered up to death. Isaiah the prophet foretold in, the, in, in Isaiah 53 of this messianic servant that he would, be, he would pour out his soul to death. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. And yet it says he was raised, you could put to life, raised to life for our justification. God's entire redemptive plan is summarized in the final verse of chapter 4. A verse that many believed was uh, reflected in early Christian uh, confessional creed. Christ died for our sins and he was raised again for our justification. Now I know some of you are like, but I thought he died for our justification. So, but, but this is saying he, he was raised for our justification. Yeah, absolutely. Here's why these are inseparably bound. Without his death, there would be no basis for your and my acquittal. If he doesn't die for your sins, you still have to pay them. But without his resurrection, there would be absolutely no proof that his death actually meant anything. That his death, the, the re redemptive reality of his death, would, you'd have no proof. They're bound together. Jesus Christ, crucified and raised to life, is the God the Father's gracious provision for the sins of a fallen race of people. So quite frankly, verse 25 is the gospel. Jesus was delivered up for ours, yours, mine, our sins, our transgressions against a holy God. He died in your place and for you, the penalty you deserve to pay. And he was raised as proof that his death actually accomplished what he said it was going to accomplish. No longer are you guilty before God if you are in Christ. Because his death paid the penalty for your sins. That is what it means to be justified in verse 1. But it says that you are justified how? By faith. 
life. It's really what Paul's been doing in Romans 1 through 4, specifically in chapter 4. Paul uses Abraham's faith to show us how peace with God is attained. He says it's not by works, but it's by faith. It's not just for the Jews, but it's for all people. We're not going to walk through all of the chapter, but I'm going to summarize it quickly with you. If you've been with us in our study in Genesis, all this is, you know this already. At the very beginning of the chapter, Paul shows Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness when? Before he had done anything. He wasn't circumcised, he hadn't even received that. If you know when he's credited to him as righteousness, that's Genesis 15. He doesn't even receive the sign of the, of the covenant in circumcision until Genesis 17. Abraham believed God's promises, even when the visible reality in front of him made no sense. Yet he trusted in God. See, it wasn't because Abraham understood how God was going to do what he said he was going to do, but that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. His trust in God's promises were credited to him as righteousness. And then we see in chapter 4, he does receive the sign of the covenant. A seal to show that it was that Abraham's faith that was credited to him as righteousness. When we talk about Abraham's faith, what it, when the scripture considers as faith is defined by the confidence, in this case of Abraham, in the inviability of the divine promise. The inviability of the divine promise. In other words, what, what Abraham believed, and it says it in verse 21 of chapter 4, Abraham was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. He, no way did he believe that what God said he was going to do would not happen. That anything would thwart that. And so Paul writes at the end of chapter 4 that this isn't just for Abraham, though. We, too, will be credited with righteousness if we believe in him who, was ra- who raised Jesus from the dead. Again, that's why verse 25 is the gospel. We who believe Jesus died for our transgressions and was raised to life will be saved by faith, just like Abraham was saved by faith, trusting in the promises of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, then what's the outcome according to the rest of verse one? We've talked about this before. Your ledger in all of life we put all your good and all your bad because your, your, your bad, your sin, is against a holy and perfect and infinitely good God. Your ledger has you at somewhere around negative infinity. And by somewhere, I mean negative infinity, right? But when we talk about being justified, being made declared right by God, it doesn't mean he just brought you back to zero temporarily waiting for you to mess up again. What you have in Christ is not only is your debt wiped away, but you are given and exchanged your unrighteousness for his righteousness, And you're all the way over here now deemed as his son or his daughter forevermore. That's why it matters when Isaiah writes that we've already read the result of righteousness is peace. You are no longer here. You're all the way over here. And the result of Christ's righteousness in you is peace with God. You are no longer his enemy. He declares you his child. Today we're looking at this theme of peace, and not just any peace, but a lasting peace. One that exists at all times and in all circumstances. Many people, even sometimes we fall into this. We believe that peace will exist for us when the circumstances around us become still, or at least manageable. Other times, and others believe that we can 
It's when we can learn to ride life's ups and downs and we can figure out this right balance in our lives, then we'll have peace. But the Bible makes clear the primary relationship that you need to pursue and enjoy this Christmas season is a peace with God Almighty himself. And it's a peace that you can enjoy because he sent his own son into this world to die in your place and for you so that faith in him results in not an unrighteousness that you, you have, but in his righteousness upon you, which brings peace. So peace with God. Now, verse 1 of chapter 5, it doesn't primarily depict a state of inner tranquility, right? It's rather a, an, an external and objective statement. If you are in Christ by faith, you are right with God. It's a stated fact. It's a truth. But, but we also want that, well, what about, but I want to I have peace. I want to feel the peace inside of me. So we took it number two, peace with ourselves, a relationship to pursue. Now, I know for some of you, especially if you grew up in church, this sounds a little bit like modern psychology-like, but, but hear me out. I believe God made you to be in right relationship with him and it ought to have peace in every area of your life. So look at verse two. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. See, in, chapter, in verse 2, we see that peace is also the joyful experience of those who live in harmony with God. Verse 1, you are in faith in Christ. You've been justified. You are at peace with God. Verse 2, there is a joyful experiencing to living that out. Peace with God leads to peace within. Look, the, the order is important. Because if you're at peace with God, your soul is no longer fighting. You're no longer fighting against God and who he made you to be. You're no longer his enemy, you're his child. You no longer have to feel alone because God has said you are his child forevermore and there's nothing you can do about it to ever get rid of that. Verse two says you have obtained access through him by faith. Obtained access to what? What does verse two say? You've obtained access to what? Grace and hope. See, we can live now not under the fear of getting it all right, right? A lot of our internal stress and anxiety comes from we gotta get it all right. But think about it, grace, you live under that in Christ. In other words, we're no longer worried about what's behind us because we live under the umbrella of grace. And we no longer fear what is coming because we have a sure hope like we talked about last week. We have a hope in Christ's death to pay for your sins. We have a hope in his resurrection promises you life. We've obtained access to grace and to hope. I do believe God desires for you to live at peace with yourself. Now look, the modern psychology of today would absolutely agree with me that you are to desire peace within yourself. The problem is where we're going to diverge and diverge strongly is I believe they're going to fumble the path in which you are to get there. Because of what they're going to tell us is the, the problem with your inner peace is out there and the solution with it is in here. The Bible says absolutely not. As we've been studying in Genesis and as you know in your own life, the problem is in here. And so if the problem is in here, in my own heart, my own sinfulness, my own desires for my own glory instead of the Lord's, then the solution can't be from within here. 
Peace within requires an outside of us solution. And that's what God did for us in Christ. Though he is transcendent, God in Christ descended into our world, taking on the flesh of his creation. And so God brought the external peace that we talked about. You are already rightly before God at peace. He brought that inside through his Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God dwells within you. So you can have peace with God. You can have peace with yourself. But let's be honest for a second. When we talk about being not at peace with ourselves, what are we most often talking about? What are people referring to when they're thinking, man, I really just don't feel that peace inside of me? Anxiety, fear, guilt, those things that tend to paralyze us, make us feel hopeless. Here again, I believe it's faith in Jesus. The faith like Abraham had, trusting fully in the promises of God. Our faith is the answer. Faith is the key here, even to your peace within yourself. Paul says in Philippians 4, so preciously, I think, in this regard, he says... Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, the picture here in this passage is that Paul is, 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 is telling us what we already know, that our minds and our hearts are all constantly under attack in this broken world. Guilt, anxiety, threats, uncertainties, confusions, they all threaten our peace. And Paul says that God wants to guard our hearts and minds. And he guards them with his peace. And he guards them beyond what even we can comprehend. God desires, here's when we talk about peace internally. God desires for you to live in a constant realization of the peace that you already have. He desires for you to live in the constant realization of the peace that you already have in him. And so when the anxieties and the guilts and the fears seem too great, he's saying, bring those to me. You are my child. You're not over here earning your way. You are my child. I am your father. Bring those to me. And as a good, loving, heavenly father, watch as I remove those from you as my spirit inside of you reminds you of the peace that you already have in me. And then watch as I put other people around you to encourage you to walk alongside of you. I hope the line of this reality is clear to you and clear from the text. You absolutely can live at peace with yourself, no matter past guilt, no matter future anxiety. But the problem would be to divorce the, the reason or the cause of that peace from first being at peace with God, that's what would be foolish. And that's what would be counterfeit. God came that you would be positionally at peace with him, justified, declared righteous. Positionally justified, positionally at peace. And because of that reality and because your past is forgiven, because your future is set, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, your heart and your mind no longer need to be fraught with trouble. Troubles will still come, right? We know that. There's times that we're still going to be tempted to fall right back into feeling overwhelmed. But because you are a child of God, he hears you and he desires for you to bring those to him as, a, as your good heavenly father. 
You can have peace in your soul this Christmas season because Jesus came that you may have life and have it to the full. Peace with God, peace with others, or peace with yourself, and lastly, peace with others. Now, I put this one last because I believe we have the least amount of control over this one and probably the least success rate, if you will. And I think it's good for us to remember this. It's good for us to remember that that when there isn't peace in every relationship that we have, we understand that it's unfortunately to be expected in a broken world. And I think that's why it's important for us to remember the way that the Apostle Paul said it in Romans 12, 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. For many of you this morning, when you get together with family and friends this Christmas season, there's going to be some painful relationships. For others of you, right now, you can think of a work or a neighbor relationship in which uh, there, there's, there's awkwardness, there's, there's hurt. Some of that hurt may be really, really old. Some of that hurt may be really, really new. In some relationships, you know what you ought to do to pursue peace, even if it's really, really hard. In other relationships, if we're honest, we're not even sure what the next right step is. But let's start with, I think, no matter the circumstance, the key to peace with others, like having peace with ourselves, begins with remembering we have peace with God through faith. When we trust in the promises of God, that that is that we, those sinners, are reconciled to him through Christ, that is the starting point for all peace, including peace with others. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Get rid of it. And he's not writing to the other people that you're not at peace with. He's writing to you and me. Let all those things go and be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. See, last week, uh, Pastor Cody preached on the theme of hope, right? And we talked about why we ought to behold Christ. Because he is our sacrifice, our substitute, and our satisfaction. And as our MC uh, last Tuesday night, as we were talking through specifically the section on Christ being our satisfaction, we talked about what that meant, that he is to be the one we treasure the most. He's the one that we put all of our ultimate hope in. Of all the relationships that we have, that one is the one that we're putting ultimate hope in. Look, I have hopes for my relationships that I'm in. I have hopes for my relationship with my wife. I have hopes and dreams for my relationships with each of my kids. I have hopes in the relationships that I have here with you guys. But even in my closest relationships, I don't place ultimate hope in those things. Now look, that's not a pessimistic way of of looking at relationships, although it may sound like it, always expecting people to let you down. I would actually argue it's an optimistic approach. Because I know that in all of my relationships, even the ones that are the closest and the best, there's going to be periods in which there's not going to be friction and lack of peace. But I, the fact that peace is even possible, because we've been first and foremost forgiven in Christ. He's my satisfaction. He's my hope. He's what I treasure most. He's what I desire to bring glory to the most. It frames the rest of my relationships. Look, when I remember... <laughs> that I've been forgiven in Christ, when I start with that, I am well suited to forgive others who have offended me to an infinitely less degree than I have offended a holy God. 
So this Christmas season, I want us to cultivate a sense of awe, a sense of amazement that the God of the universe, the one that you sinned against over and over and over again, he sent his one and only son into the muck of our lives that he would die in your place and for you. A death that he did not deserve so that you and I may be at peace with our heavenly father. Do you remember the parable of the guy who was forgiven a ton and then he couldn't forgive the guy who owed a little bit? If you're not familiar with it, go read it in Matthew chapter 18. But this guy owed an exorbitant amount of money. I mean, it's said in such a way that there's no way he could pay it back. And the ruler forgives him that debt. And the man leaves and he goes and finds a guy who owes him effectively nothing by comparison. And he demands him to pay it back. Why is it that he couldn't forgive this debt? I believe it's because he was never enamored with what he had been forgiven. If he had paused and recognized the amount that he had been forgiven, he'd recognize that that little thing that he needed, that this guy owed him, would be nothing by comparison. His heart had never actually been changed. Church, when God in Christ made peace with us in him, he makes our hearts tender and kind and forgiving. Much of our, to do with our, us having peace with one another starts with our own willingness to forgive. Now I know somewhere in there you're going, yeah, 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 but you don't understand what they did. To me. No, no, no. Much of our living at peace with others begins with our willingness to forgive. And what that means, by the way, this isn't that forgiveness is I forgive you and then the next time they mess up, you go all the way back over here and start counting all the times they messed up. That's not forgiveness. When God forgave your sins, the Bible says he took it as far as the east is from the west. He's not a forgetful God. He actively chose to say, I will not count their sin against them again. That's what it means to forgive, keeping no tallies of wrongs against us. But just in case you're still holding on to the fact that, well, that person offended me. They're the one who ought to be making peace with me. That's not how the gospel works either. What happened in your relationship with the Lord? What happened in your relationship with the Lord if you were in Christ is you sinned against him over and over and over and over and over again. You continued to offend him over and over and over again and he sent his own son into the world to die in your place and for you. He took the initiative. He acted first. If we are in Christ, we are to be people who will take the initiative in making peace. Now, it's not a guarantee it's all gonna go right. What happened to Jesus when he acted first in making peace? (laughs) Many rejected him, put him on a cross, killed him. So it's true. It's not a guarantee that if you are a peacemaker, if you desire to live at peace with everyone, that it will succeed. I think, again, that's why Paul writes, as so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Jesus was rejected by many people. But here's the thing. Don't let the bitter, don't let the hurt make you bitter. Jesus still wept over the people he knew would reject him. Instead, be continue to keep being more amazed that your wrongs have been forgiven than you are that you are wronged yourself. Keep being more amazed that your wrongs have been forgiven than that you have been wronged. While many did reject Christ, there were still others that loved him, followed after him, While many still reject him today, and by extension us, 
when you attempt to make peace, there are still those who continue to place faith in Christ. They place in his sacrifice, they place faith in his resurrection, and they are guaranteed peace with God. You and I are to be peacemakers. And the reality is this. You don't have to be at peace with everyone to be at peace. If you are at peace with God. You don't have to be at peace with everyone. Though we should strive for it. If you are at peace with God. Look, this morning we've talked about the theme or the reality of peace. That you can have in Christ today and every day moving forward. So as we conclude, here's what I want us to do. I want you to be amazed, captivated, enamored that Jesus came into the brokenness of this world, into your world, into your brokenness, died for your sins, rose victorious over sin and its consequence of death. I want you to be amazed and captivated and enamored that though we are sinners just like Abraham was when he believed and trusted in God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so too you also can place faith in God through Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit and it be counted to you as righteousness. And I want you to be amazed and, cap- and, and, and captivated and enamored that though you don't deserve it, you can have peace with the almighty God of the universe. And that peace you have with God now extends down into your heart and to your mind because his Holy Spirit indwells you. And where there is peace with God, there is no place for guilt. Your sins, past and present, are already forgiven, all of them, every single one of them. No place for guilt. Where there is peace with God, there's no place for anxiety because you are a child of God forevermore and there's nothing you can do to change that title or position. Your future is set and it is not dependent on even what could be the worst thing that could happen to you. Where there is peace with God, there is peace for your heart and for your mind. And just as peace has been extended to us in Christ, so too now we have the opportunity to extend the message of peace and peace ourselves to others. And it's in the hopes that they too will, will repent of their sins, that they will believe that Christ was raised up for our trespasses and he was raised again for our justification. And that their unrighteousness will be exchanged for Christ's righteousness. And the result of righteousness is peace. And we want that for others as well. Church, we are to be amazed that you have peace with God. You have peace with your soul. And you can be a peacemaker and a peace extender to others. Church, praise the Lord that we have a God who we have peace with. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we could literally spend hours upon hours just digging into the truth of your word in Romans 4 and first part of 5 and really never get all the way to the bottom of it. That the concept that God, the God of the universe, who made a good creation, put man and woman in right relationship with you, only for that creation to rebel against you. And God, all of us coming after that deserve your wrath, deserve to be separated from you. And you would be absolutely good and right if you judged us in our sin. And yet, from the very beginning, 
a plan to send your own son into this world to die in our place and for us as the perfect sacrifice. A penalty that he did not deserve, but that we do. God, this morning we thank you that through faith, not because we are good enough, because we never will be, but out of faith and trusting in your promises, God, that we can be made just. You declare us justified. You declare us not guilty. And the result of that is peace with you forevermore. God, what a wonderful story. What a wonderful reality that we get to live in. That you who, though we are sinners, died in our place and for us so that we could be made right with you. And then, God, you've given us the opportunity to go and to be peacemakers and peace extenders to others. So they, too, may understand and see and experience the beauty of genuine, lasting peace. God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your son and his sacrifice and resurrection. God, we give you praise in all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.